Midnight Princess ready to launch! Tato, hold on! All I do is worry when she's running around out there. I'm Nausicaa. I'm from the Valley of the Wind. Princess! Soon this place, too, will be consumed by the toxic jungle. But I don't understand. Who could have polluted the entire Earth? The anger of the Ohm reflects the anger of the Earth. The Earth knows it's wrong for us to survive. You now live at the edge of the jungle, on the verge of extinction. What are you planning to do to my valley? Listen, you don't understand the jungle. Oh, Nasika, be calm. We're doing this for the good of the planet. All this killing must stop! You must stop! I'm afraid of myself, Lord Yupa. The jungle is killing you, yet you want to live in harmony with it? Go, Nasika, go! <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John and with me as always is my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm communing with the Ohm and contemplating the possible extinction of humankind. How about you, John? You had that in the chamber, didn't you? <laughs> Absolutely. It didn't, it's not fair because I didn't prepare anything, but that's all right. That's all right. I'm sure, I'm sure I'll... I'll uh... Uh, redeem myself at some point later, but I'm good too. I'm I'm fine. And of course, uh, as you hinted with your introduction, today we're talking about Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, the 1984 movie by Hayao Miyazaki, Miyazaki based on his manga. And of course, we might touch into other Miyazaki movies, especially ones that do feature other uh, uh, female heroes or female action heroes, as is the, as is the theme of uh, our season, season four. Uh, so why don't we jump straight into it? And Jason, uh, tell us a little bit about this movie and uh, what was your first experience with it? So we can't really talk about uh, Naushka without talking about its creator, Hayao Miyazaki. But the film has its roots in themes, settings, and storylines in manga that he had been writing years earlier, particularly the manga The People of the Desert. And in anime, he directed like Future Boy Conan and an aborted anime adaptation of Richard Corbin's Rolf, and also in the fortuitous connections he made during his rise through the manga and animation world. So Naushka of the Valley of the Wind was the second feature film ever directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Up until this point, he had become a veteran animator and rising director at various studios like Toei Animation Company and Tokyo Movie Shinsha, while he also maintained his childhood dream of being a manga artist on the side. So notable Animation credits include co-directing Lupin the Third, Part 1, with Isao Takahata, and working on the popular TV series World Masterpiece Theatre, and also directing the television series mentioned earlier, Future Boy Conan. He made his solo directing debut with The Castle of Cagliostro. At this time, uh, current studio Ghibli producer Toshio Suzuki was actually working for manga publisher Tokuma Shoten and running Animage magazine. He had pursued Miyazaki and Takahata for articles in the past, and finally got his chance to teach them after the release of Kagliostro. 
He liked the film so much that he introduced Miyazaki to staff at Tacoma Shoten. And that was where Miyazaki began writing and illustrating his manga, Naushka of the Valley of the Wind, in 1982. And it was serialized in Anime Age magazine. And it didn't actually finish publication until 1994. Uh, on a connected note, his one-volume manga, The Journey of Shuna, was also published by Takuma Shoten in 1983. And that would also have themes and characters that would appear in Miyazaki's later film, Princess Mononoke. But back to Naushka. The manga became a sensation, and Yasuyoshi Tokuma, founder of Tokuma Shoten, encouraged Miyazaki to turn it into a film. Now Miyazaki didn't have a real direction to take the film in because he was only 16 chapters into the story, but eventually agreed to make a film on the condition that he could direct it. Miyazaki and Isao Takata, who was acting as producer, chose a small studio named Topcraft to handle animation production, and Takahata brought in composer Joe Hisaishi. The film proved to be a major hit and grossed 1.48 billion yen at the box office and made an additional 742 million yen in home video distribution income. Its influence was spread far and wide and helped cement Miyazaki's reputation as a director. On a connected note, it was this time at Topcraft where you find the nucleus of Studio Ghibli staff forming because most of the Topcraft staff followed Miyazaki when he founded Studio Ghibli. Uh, but that's for the future. Let's get back to the film itself. So, the film is set 1,000 years after a global war has wiped out industrialized civilization. The remnants of humanity have set up small nations that are surrounded by arid deserts and toxic forests known as the Sea of Decay. From the forests come spores that make the air poisonous for humans to breathe. And inside the forests are giant insects which protect the dangerous habitats. The forests are ever-spreading and overrunning an ever-dwindling human population. We follow a princess named Naoshika. Uh, she is from the Valley of the Wind a small community clinging onto a coastal region and protected from the spores by the sea breeze. Princess Naoshika and her people find themselves caught between two empires fighting over ancient weaponry that can be used to dominate what remains of the world. And so begins the film. So, uh, we have Princess Naoshika, played by Sumi Shimamoto, and in the English dub, Alison Lohman, who uh, featured in the horror film Drag Me to Hell. Uh, Lord Yupa is played by Patrick Stewart. Um, and another famous name, Asbel, uh, is played by Shia LaBeouf. And Kushana is played by Uma Thurman. And uh, yep, as we already know, Hayao Miyazaki wrote and directed the film. Isao Takahata acted as producer and Joe Hisaishi as musician. One, one, I don't know if you, if you were going to mention it, but I read that one of the animators was Hideaki Anno. Yes, he answered... And I had calling for more animators, and apparently, um, it seems like uh, his uh, designs won Miyazaki over immediately, and he went on to handle all the um, giant robot scenes in the film. Yes, exactly. Which is very, uh, very foreshadowing. I mean, it's the one thing he's known for, and coincidentally, that's what he did in this movie. Indeed, you can see the early roots of Evangelion uh, designs. Absolutely. So, yeah, um, my first uh, experience of it. Do you know what? I can't remember when I watched the film. Um, it must have been when Film 4 had earned the rights as a television channel in the UK, and they screened um, like the entire Ghibli catalogue over like summers. Um, I remember uh, feeling oddly cold about it, um, because I liked the other Ghibli films a lot more. Um, I could see that it was like a prototypical Ghibli work because it was from before the studio was founded and it featured like strong female protagonists, airships, ecology themes uh, about the environment. 
and um, it featured things I like, like post-apocalyptic storylines and lost civilizations. And um, it, I recognized that it featured brilliant world building, um, but uh, it d- didn't satisfy me, maybe because I felt like it was truncated. But um, I've watched it numerous times, and it's definitely grown on me, um, especially because I focus on Naushka as a character and her altruistic behavior. And it's really, um, it moves me every time I watch her. And uh, like she's a really special um, female action hero. Um, and then having done research for this podcast episode and read the manga, I think I respect the movie a lot more, especially because it was made by Miyazaki while the story was still in its embryonic stage, like the God Warrior. And um, he still managed to contain, uh, tell a coherent story which contained all of the themes. But yeah, um, reading the manga was mind-blowing because uh, I, the, the world's expanded a lot more, but I get feeling we're going to talk about that later in the episode. Yeah, well, I haven't read the manga, so there's not much that I can contribute to it. But I, I, I have it, and I really want to read it, especially after rewatching uh, this movie. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy when you, especially think about it, that um, uh, Miyazaki doesn't plan his stories. He's more of a, a sort of a stream of consciousness process where he just kind of makes up the story as he writes it. That's an incredible process because, like, although I can see, like. Um, there's constant iterations of various stories. Of um, course, yeah. And, and w- not just from project to project, but within the same project, as you, when you watch the film, you see repetition of Noshka's actions. And uh, yeah, he holds on to the same themes for yeah, each of yeah. the films. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but it's another, yeah, it's hard to imagine also. I, I mean, obviously, like you said, he is an, he's a, a w- w- well accomplished manga writer, but I've met tons of Miyazaki fans. I've never met anyone who is familiar with his manga, or even most of them don't even aware, are not even aware that he is a manga artist, in addition to being a filmmaker. Yeah, the films always get pushed more. Absolutely. And I think, I think if, yes, uh, like you said, Nausicaa is definitely uh, was a sensation, but I don't think he's had as much success with his other manga as he's had with, uh, with his films. Um, but the other thing that you can add to this is that that's how he writes. He doesn't write scripts in the traditional sense. He essentially writes manga. That's the screenplay. Uh, he, he, he writes like another, another one, another way to say it is he writes through storyboards, but that's what essentially manga is, right? Yes. And then he delivers the, his storyboards to the animators and that's what they animate. Uh, and then they produce the finished movie. So in a sense, everything that he's done is a manga, whether or not it has been published prior to the film what he hasn't. I think it's a really good point because the manga is definitely cinematic. There's just grand scope uh, in many panels, breathtaking action scenes, uh, fantastic character details that carry through uh, each of the panels. Like you, you feel like you're, this could be transposed onto the screen with ease. Uh, yeah. Uh, before uh, before I go into my first experience with the film, uh, I'd like to air a grievance uh, on the podcast, and I think I have mentioned this before, but I really dislike the term a Studio Ghibli film. How come? Before, before one thing, it's not accurate about this movie, right? This this preceded the Studio Ghibli, uh, the creation of a Studio Ghibli. But second, I think there is a, a, a misrepresentation of what these movies are. Uh, because it's not when it's not like when you say that there's a, an equivalent established with a Studio Ghibli film versus a Disney film versus a Pixar film, and it's not at all the same. The Studio Ghibli is not a studio in the same sense that Disney is or Pixar. Studio Ghibli is an excuse for two filmmakers to make movies: Hayao Miyazaki 
and Isao Takahata. Yes, they've had a few other projects, of course, but nobody knows about them. It's it's they're sort of like small things that they've done in between. But that's that's the entire reason for Studio Ghibli's existence was so Miyazaki and Takahata could make films independently without interference from other from other producers. And the two filmmakers are very different from each other. You have Miyazaki films and you have Takahata films. Neither of them have uh, so that many common threads as to be lumped into studio film, studio Ghibli films. And usually people are not even aware of Takahata as much. Whenever people say a studio Ghibli film, they usually mean a Miyazaki film. So that's that's why I it, I I feel like it re- re- misrepresents this part of Japanese cinema. It's not it's meaningless to say a studio film uh, f- film. It's not the same as when you say a Disney film. You sort of understand what that is when you say a Pixar film. You understand what that is, but it, it, when you say a Studio Ghibli film, it's it doesn't. It's a, almost like a meaningless sentence. You either mean a Miyazaki film or a Takahata, Takahata film, and that's that's how I usually prefer to describe them. A lot of people don't agree with me. I don't care, but it's it's like a, Ghibli is like a shell corporation, almost metaphorically speaking. It it's not a real studio. It's a it's an excuse for these two filmmakers to make to make movies independently of interference. No, I I think that's a very fair point, actually, because as you said, the two directors have very two different approaches to their material. They tackle different material to themselves. Um, like Takahata is definitely uh, apart from uh, Princess Kaguya, he's definitely more for realism. Absolutely, and yeah, yeah you've. There's been attempts to foster new talent at Studio Ghibli, but it hasn't always stuck. And yeah, they, they um, have like a, a maybe three other films that they have done in the entire history that are not Miyazaki or Takahata. Uh, they've also have other projects, like a, they have a museum, right? Yes, in uh, Mitaka in Tokyo, and I think they're opening up a um, a theme park in Nagoya as well. Yeah, and they have uh, strangely, in my opinion. Oh, excuse me. Strangely, in my opinion, they have also uh, worked in some video games, primarily doing animation for video games. But that's that's more like animation for hire rather than anime. Like they've worked as animators for hire, and I'm assuming to pay the bills because Takahata and uh, Miyazaki are not easy to work with in terms of being commercially uh, amenable. Like they take their sweet time with the movies they make, and uh, that whole time they have to pay staff, they have to to, to keep the lights on. So. So I'm assuming they've or any other projects that they've taken on have been out of necessity rather than out of them trying to develop as a studio. Yeah, Toshio Suzuki has worked wonders, um, sort of marketing the studio and uh, merchandising various things because you've got go to museums in Japan, you can pick up goods. They've also got stores in various places in Tokyo. Yeah, and as you said, they've collaborated with um, I think the studio is called Level Five, the guys that did Professor Layton on um, Nino Kuni. They did the animation for that. As an official collaboration, um, yeah. But um, like the, like as I was mentioned earlier, they tried to foster new talent, but that new talent tends to go elsewhere. Like to they, um, one director called Studio Ponok and um, released a few films that are very Ghibli esque there. And it feels like, as you said, it's tied to Miyazaki and Takahata, and you get the sense that when Miyazaki um, finishes his career, then that'll be it for Studio Ghibli. It's kind of like it's winding down but then we always get the sense that it's winding down because Miyazaki announces he's retiring and people wonder who's going to fill his shoes and nobody well, can fill his shoes. he's 82 now so I feel like this one is probably the real one like yeah the and boy it takes, and I the mean, heron say that again how do you li- the boy and the heron or how do you yes live? which we'll talk about later in our news section but uh 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, it's not like he can make a movie in, like, a couple of years. He takes, like I said, he takes it sweet time. Uh, something that he accused Takahashi. I honestly get the feeling they didn't get along. Like, they produced each other's movies. But again, that was... It, it, it was an odd producing assignment because... They, they, he, like in the documentary, he constantly complains about Takahata, how he takes forever to make movies. And of course, here we have Miyazaki taking eight years to make this one and like five years to make the previous one or whatever, however long that took. But these are, these are two dedicated workaholics with strong personalities. So of course, they're going to be very competitive. They're going to clash. Absolutely. But anyway, like I said, to go back to the sort of like what we're talking about, my, I think this was late in my Miyazaki sort of filmography. I saw a lot of other Miyazaki films before I got to, to Nausicaa or Nausicaa. And, um, and I think like you, I was perhaps, I enjoyed the film, but I, it felt like in somewhat inferior to, uh, to, uh, to his other films. And uh, and I, th- I upon rewatching it, this is actually only the second time that I have seen it. I had seen it only once before, and like I said, I uh, I've seen other Miyazaki films multiple times, but this one, like I said, the first time that I watched it, it, there was something that didn't quite that didn't quite work with me for me. Um, and uh, not, that's not longer the case after the second rewatch. But even the first time, what I really appreciated this movie, and still what I do appreciate a lot, is the world building sort of like the entire environment and the exposition and the sort of like the, 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 the entire like universe that he creates, which is almost like an alternate earth based, based on the real one, but with enough, with enough sort of like fantasy and science, science fictional deviations as to give it like an extra, you know, it's, it's sort of a metaphorical layer on top of the real world that keeps him enough separated so he can make the points that he wants to make, but still close enough that he can, you can easily draw parallels between the story or the world that Miyazaki creates uh, and the, the world of, uh, of uh, Nausicaa and the, in, in the dub, uh, they call it the toxic jungle, not the sea of decay, which is a fun, I, I kind of like toxic jungle a little bit better because the, the term jungle has like a certain connotation, but still. Uh, it's a very apt descriptor. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, absolutely. But I, I think one, I, one thing that I would like to start with is kind of we always ask about these movies that we've talked about uh, this season is, is you know, these female action heroes. Uh, but of course, there are many kind of female action heroes or even fe- female heroes in general. They're truly female heroes and they're female heroes that feel like they're just replacing male roles. Like we've talked about this before, right? It's it's not truly feminine. Not that there is like an, a correct, true feminine. Of course, that's not what we're saying, but there is the sense that you know these are just like a swap where the the role will, could have been easily just be you can replace it with a male character and uh and you nobody could tell the difference or the difference would be very minimal do you think that is the case here do you think there's something truly feminine about sort of Nausicaa first and foremost and then maybe other Miyazaki female heroes as well i think there is something truly uh feminine about Nausicaa for example, like uh, throughout the film, you've got all the male characters um, commenting that, oh, I wish she was a prince so I would worry less. And uh, in the manga, that's uh, expanded upon and um, people are constantly surprised when they see her. Um, oh, that's a girl? Oh, wow, this is a shock. But also the world of um, Naushika, it's 
kind of like medieval and there's a sort of patriarchal element to it. And when you see the women in the world, they don't have much choice in the decision making apart from Naushka and um, the evil princess Kushana. And you can see that uh, like both women are very complicated characters and um, they're reacting to a very masculine world, uh, Kushana especially. And, you, and that's like perhaps the source. Well, it's, it is like the system that she grew up in um, where she has to become much harder uh, much more vicious uh, and become uh, essentially an evil character. It's because she's in a male-dominated system and she has to fight for like um, her life, which is yeah. constantly under threats. Um, it's again, it's expanded upon in the manga. Um, yeah, at least in the movie, I don't say I wouldn't say that she comes off as an evil character. It's uh, I think in the movie compared to the um, manga, she's a bit more one note. Um, it, there's a lot more expansion on the character in the manga. You get more of a background. I've, she's a very sophisticated antagonist who changes over the course yeah. of the film because she but doesn't. But in the film, come, she changes. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah, she doesn't. She doesn't come. Um, if this were a typical Hollywood movie, like an evil property developer, she'd be cackling and counting her money. She'd be destroying things without any good reason. But she has a logic behind her actions, which is she wants to destroy the toxic forests and she's willing to use any methods necessary and she's got motivation to do it because she suffered at the hands of insects because she's uh, at the head of an empire um and she has to secure her people's survival and it makes complete sense and for anybody who's listening to her and under her sway if they see her might uh they might be uh convinced um to follow her so she makes an effective leader but in the movie at least she does seem to kind of a fall for Nausicaa's sort of like persuasion uh, of, you know, there's more than one way to do this, even though she, she kind of eventually ends up waking the giant, so to speak. Uh, she still, you know, gives, gives Nausicaa the benefit of the doubt pretty much the entire second half of the movie. Uh, and in the end, she does stop the, the war when she finds, when she believes that Nausicaa is coming through that glider. It, it ends up not being Nausicaa. It's the, uh, Master Yupa or whatever his name is, but it does seem that she has sort of a change of heart about halfway through the movie. Again, I don't know if that's the same thing in the manga, but at least in the movie, that's the case. Yeah, in the manga, she's very, very driven, and um, she's uh, put through a lot of trials and tribulations and brought to the edge of death. And um, both in the manga and the movie, I think she begins to recognize like the power, the overwhelming power of nature, but also Naushka's ability to break through power by being much more empathetic. And uh, that's a typical trait of uh, female heroes that Miyazaki has created. There's this idealized feminine hero who's capable of selflessness, um, and that allows her to um, win over opposition or find uh, ways around problems. Uh, I, th I think that's kind of what's feminine about this. Maybe, maybe not I think it's a sort of Miyazaki's belief or like a Miyazaki's conception of the feminine, which is there's almost like a, a like a sly hint that none of this destruction would have happened if more women were in charge. Uh, almost if he's saying that because we see a lot of cases where women are sort of a lot more compassionate. They're men, a lot more logical, a lot more uh, uh, mature, like when they rescue Nausicaa from from the Pegite prison that she's in temporarily. Yeah, the men are constantly uh, constantly making genocidal decisions, and the women are like, "Let's roll this back, guys." Uh, exactly. So that's which again, it, it's perhaps somewhat idealized, and I think 
one criticism that I always said on Miyazaki is that perhaps he's a bit too idealistic, which is uh, which always kind of seeks into his his movies. Uh, but then again, he does have a, a a woman character that is just as ambitious as, if not more than all the, or at least just as destructive, uh, if not more than all the men. Uh, and Nausicaa is, you know, fearless throughout the entire movie, but she just she's just not violent. Basically, she she she's like the stereotypical badass, uh, quote unquote, uh, warrior. But she does it in a completely different way. She does it through, uh, through lack of fear. Uh, again, she's fearless pretty much the entire movie, and also lack of anger. That's like a key aspect that she's always sort of. She's always maybe this happens five or six times in the movie where she's always is kind of put in the middle of other people's anger. Uh, and rage, and she always kind of ha- her first instinct is to always figure out a way to to kind of instead of fighting anger with anger to kind of uh, uh, subdue it and and like bring down other people's or sometimes insects' anger. The o- the only exception to that is when their father dies. That's the only in the film. The only exception where she's unable to do that is when he sees her father being shot, which is, uh, to me, it was a bit strange. Like, they just kind of come into town, and they're just the first thing they do is go to the king and shoot him. Like, uh, we didn't get... I, I felt like that could have gone a little bit longer, but it, it doesn't matter. It's a minor point in the film. Uh, and that's it. And I feel like that's sort of, at least according to Miyazaki, that's a very feminine trait that he sort of got, like, that he, like he could not have done it. At least, again, according to Miyazaki, he could not have sort of being accomplished the same with a male character. I, I, and, uh, well, we see that later with Princess Mononoke that it is possible. But um, uh, when you have a male character in that position. But um, yeah, like this is uh, him making uh, a film based on a manga that he hasn't quite decided on. So he's just using uh, shorthand uh, to get the story going. And like that uh, ability for Naoshika to accept people's and to, first of all, to understand people, to understand that like a lot of the violence in the world that she exists in is driven by fear, and to mitigate that fear by accepting it, um, by accepting it, by accepting people's anger, it's brilliantly illustrated um, from like first moment we see her with um, Lord Yupa, and she uh, meets Teto, and she allows the uh, the uh, fox squirrel to bite her, and um, she sues it, and you see. Other, as you said earlier, we see other examples of that where she's doing it for humans and for insects, and she's talking to people on their level, which is um, really refreshing. Seeing that empathy. Uh, yes, of course. After that scene, she would need a rabies shot if, it would, <laughs> if this was the real world, but it's it's fortunately it's not. That that's it. <laughs> uh, I've, I've talked about sometimes how how where my mind goes for some things, but that 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 was I. If that happened to me, I would be in the hospital within ten minutes and say just. Give me a rabies shot, uh, because <laughs> that there's a few worse things to go than by rabies. Just um, cut my finger off before the poison spreads. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's right, exactly. Yeah. So, like I said, like like you said, and like I said, that's the, the in except that one scene with her father. Her first instinct is always to try to to try to calm the situation and try to find other solutions to every problem that are not violence. And you did bring, uh, you did bring uh, the. Example of uh, uh, what's his name in Princess Mononoke? Uh, uh, Ashitaka. Ashitaka. Well, yes, I mean yes, he does uh, preach nonviolence, but he also takes a lot of people's heads off, a lot of soldiers' heads off, 
So it's not quite the same. Heads off, like a lot of heads fly off in that movie. A lot of pans get chopped off and a lot of by him. So it's not, I don't think it's quite the same. I think he, he will use violence when he needs to. Uh, uh, he doesn't necessarily, uh, he's not necessarily talk first and shoot second. Sometimes he will shoot first. But yes, it's, it's also overall, he is preaching for peace. But this is also Naushka's journey to sort of um, ascend into a leadership position, a uh, position to um, like that moment where her father is killed. That's like an obstacle that she has to challenge and she has to master that rage inside her. And she says that she's scared of that rage inside her. And you can see other examples in the world around her where people are driven by fear and anger. And making terrible decisions, and she's the only one thinking long term. She's the only person who can bring people together because she has that strength to master those negative emotions, and that's her journey for the film. So yeah, it's a lot longer. So the Pejete Empire isn't really a factor in the manga. It's uh, actually the Dorok Empire, and uh. We get a lot more about the ancient civilizations, um, the seven days of fire, and um, the what happened to humanity in that time period afterwards. You get a lot more of the um, the grand politics of the world um, and the warfare between the Dorok Empire and the Tolmechians, and um, various different tribes that live in the toxic forest. And um, we actually see like more brutal scenes of combats with bodies tumbling from um, burning airships in the sky and um, people getting crushed, melted, blasted apart. And Naushka takes part in a massive cavalry charge, which is just really exciting to read. Um, and you've got lots of insects devouring people and just like one of the really interesting emotions that the manga um, has is just this sense of frustration because you're watching the last remnants of humanity essentially um, waste what precious little resources they have with biological and um, chemical warfare and just huge swathes of um, civilization get wiped out. And um, all throughout this, Naushka is battling to bring humanity back from the edge to stop people from being at war with each other. So it's just there's this massive scale that the manga achieves that the film only hints at. So you're getting like the first, maybe, well, yeah, the first, I don't know, 20 chapters of the manga and there's like 100 chapters more. Yeah, but is there like an equivalent portion in the manga that more or less corresponds to the film? I'd have to reread the manga, but uh, it, it, it generally or, follows the film's storyline. Okay, but for that, that, my question would be, for that part where the manga follows the film or vice versa, are, are there any significant differences? Not, not for the rest of the manga where it goes, but just for the parts that are covered in the film. Is the manga in any way different? Does it say anything different from the film? No, it's, the, it's, it's essentially establishing the same world, but you get more expansion on the characters, especially Kushana and what's happening in the royal court in Tolmechia. So you find out that she's got um, brothers and that they've given her the raw end of the deal in terms of invading different parts of um, the world. And uh, they're hoping to hog the glory, but it's actually like a plot to get rid of her. And um, you get more of an expansion on her character. Yeah, I did think for the movie, uh, the first 20 or 30 minutes of the movie, the one, the one minor criticism that I would offer is there's a lot of expositional dialogue, meaning the actors, the, the characters that talk and sort of like give exposition in a way that would feel unnatural in a conversation. It's not a big deal, but it does happen. And I do feel like 
Like this would benefit from being a TV show. I know that Miyazaki is not commercial, uh, commercially oriented almost at all. Uh, uh, and like you, you did mention that the producer of the who was the other person in Studio Ghibli, uh, Toshio uh, Suzuki. Suzuki Suzuki has done a great job with marketing various the various uh, uh, Studio Ghibli uh, properties to add like theme parks and stuff. But uh, this could might be anecdotal, but Miyazaki has been kind of largely against that. <laughs> he he's not uh, in favor of like this like mass massive commerci- commercialization of his uh, of his movies. I don't know if Takahata was on the same page, but that seems to be the case. Yeah, a lot more control over the movies themselves and preventing um, companies from editing them uh, too extensively. And um, yeah, it's uh, Suzuki's definitely like uh, the businessman behind everything and Miyazaki and Takahata, the creators. Yeah, but my point is that uh, Suzuki's work is more impressive considering that he's kind of had to do everything despite Miyazaki's and Takahata's <laughs> Uh, you know, perhaps possible objection. Again, it's anecdotal. I don't, I don't know how true it is. It's like uh, handling the enfant terrible geniuses. Ex- exa- exactly, uh, precisely. And, and some of that kind of shows in the documentaries. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a couple documentaries. One is on Netflix, and then one came out in theaters, actually. Uh, uh, both is about the one, Kingdom of Dreams and Madness? Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, that the first one, that's for the... That's during the making of... Um, uh, the 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 plane movie, the movie about the plane, uh, the, the wind, wind rises. And then there's another one that was released a few years later. There was actually telling about the first time, like uh, that Miyazaki made a film in 3D, like a computer uh, with C- entirely CGI. And when he decides to actually make the boy and the Huron, hmm. uh, it was it was a TV documentary in Japan, but it was actually released in North America in theaters. And I saw that, and just a, a bit on the side, there's a scene in that movie where uh, there's a young, uh, that is, I think it suggested that he was a student of Miyazaki, or like he was one of his animators, and he kind of went off to create like a, an independent studio of his own, specializing on AI animation, uh, and they show a sample to Miyazaki, and then Miyazaki's so disappointed that he com- basically tears him a new one, and you see the, sort of like the guy cry in front of him on the table, it was, it's, it's just relentless. Uh, it's it's hard to imagine Miyazaki being mean to anyone, but oh my god, he was mean to this guy. Uh, I did, yeah, he he has a reputation of being a really grumpy old man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But possible, he's even possible. harsh on his own son, Goro Miyazaki. Just yes, yes. Uh, but uh, but oh my god, like just imagine, like just imagine, you are you finally you feel like you've created something new and exciting, and you show it to your hero. You show it to your hero. And then he says, you're garbage. This is, this is <laughs> terrible. That's what he said. He said, because it was AI animation and he was showing the process of an AI learning. And he was like a guy on screen just kind of walking sort of with a limb because that's how the AI learned. And Miyazaki took that as, be, as making fun of handicapped people. I, th- I feel like Miyazaki uh, did, did not understand what the technology was. Yeah. Uh, um, but he, it, it, like I said, he tore him a new one. The guy was crying and he says, oh, I just want to... Uh, uh, and he, and that that's and then Miyazaki comes out, starts smoking, and says, "I cannot believe what this world is coming to." In typical Miyazaki fashion, <laughs> uh, I strongly recommend watching this documentary. I think it came out in 2016, 2017, somewhere around that time. 
I, I cannot believe what this world is coming to, which is the theme of most of his movies. <laughs> yeah, he says that in the, uh, the the Kingdom of Dreams and Madness or whatever. Uh, he just kind of, I, I remember a scene from, we're digressing a lot now, but I remember a scene from that where he kind of sits in front of a lake or something. And he says, one day this will all be covered in, in tall grass. Uh, like, meaning that, oh, when, when we finally destroy the earth, the nature will resurface or something like that. It all comes back to Noshka. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, but, but like I said in the beginning, going back to Noshka, uh, I was very fascinated by the world, the world building, and like especially the parallels that it is to the real world and perhaps what was very much in the air in the 80s and 70s when Miyazaki was possibly thinking about this story and crafting this story. Uh, and I think we can both agree that the, the giant warriors are a metaphor for nuclear weapons, right? Yeah, there's the scene where Kushana actually gets the giant warrior to fire off its laser, and there's a mushroom cloud explosion, which is, yeah. And there's this sort of like almost biological aspect to them, but if you look at their skeletons, they look like metallic, right? They look like they're artificially made when they open their mouth to shoot the laser. Yeah, there's this gloopy flesh that pulses on the outside, which is very disturbing and i think the biological aspect is like sort of like this has like 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 the the war the weapons race the nuclear weapons race it sort of has taken a life of its own that no one person or country can control it anymore uh and i think that's sort of like the metaphor there and the seven days of hell or whatever the seven days of fire is very much very clearly a metaphor for nuclear war i think yeah in the movie whenever anybody uses violence it's always turned against them and like, there's this great scene where Kushana has everybody at gun t gunpoint after they've crash landed in the forest, and she's got a pistol and she's willing to fire it. And Nashka's like, "Well, you can fire that, but the insects will come after us, and you won't stand a chance." Again, Nashka's the only person thinking like long term about things. Absolutely, uh, but yeah, but going to the nuclear Armageddon. I mean, we're living in a post-nuclear Armageddon here. Uh, basically, and the, the Earth is, and you know, like like very much nuclear Armageddon, certain isotopes can take thousands of years to decay, and where do they usually land up? It's in the soil, and that's what one key scene in the film where Lord Yuka is kind of looking for uh, for Nausicaa, and she has that secret, excuse me, that secret garden of hers, uh, and she says that she discovered that the the toxin is only in the soil. As long as you give these plants clean soil to to grow. Uh, they'll be fine. And that's basically what how nuclear fallout works. It kind of deposits in the soil, and, and that's, where it, that's why sort of life kind of dies off. Yeah, the, like, there's a great ecosystem that's built up that makes sense. Every and everything in the world of the movie uh, you know, is like, uh, has an effect, uh, has a part to play. So the insects protect the forest. The forest purifies the earth. Beneath the forest lies clean water and the chance of uh, clean um, soil. And the humans, uh, like their whole cultures, are shaped around surviving the toxic spores in the forest. So everybody's got gas masks, everybody's got this utilitarian sort of work um, clothes, and they've got flashbangs and um, bug calming um, instruments. And the, like all of these details constantly come into play. So it's very atmospheric and engaging world to become a part of and you've just got so many great like sequences especially like the 10 minute opening where lord yupa 
chances upon a, a well he goes to a village and finds that, that it's been overtaken by the toxic forest and you see skeletons around very atmospheric and then you switch to Nashika and she's in the forest and the like the tone changes the music's much more wondrous and she's uh, jumping around um, she's experimenting with things she's approaching things with much more open mind whereas like the people outside of the forest are again driven by fear of it and making all terrible choices uh, and especially in this opening scene I can't help but think that uh, watching some of the imagery uh, here uh, final the final fantasy series was undoubtedly inspired by Nausicaa uh, like there's little chocobos in the yes. in the opening scene <laughs> that's the one element but just in general the tone I feel like the tones sort of like the the you know the magic forest and the dangerous forest the the wandering monsters that kill everyone seems like a like a huge inspiration for the final fantasy series yeah i think um Hironobu sakaguchi has said it was a massive inspiration for him okay i did not know that yeah i, I think i read that on the wikipedia page actually that's the... okay <laughs> and um but yeah like uh, final fantasy often features um like uh, ancient technology, lost civilizations. Um, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a common trope in Japanese role-playing games, like Etrian Odyssey. On, uh, and two, I, it's one of my favorite tropes in science fiction, the idea that there's ancient technology that's kind of lying dormant on for civilization that somehow has regressed for some reason, usually yeah. nuclear war. That was, that was kind of the case in... Um, uh, Junkhead. In Junkhead, yeah, that's exactly. That, that's what I had in mind, sort of. It's it's a very and this is the same case and we can maybe talk about sort of some of the inspirations of um, of Miyazaki for doing this. Obviously, it was the ancient myth of, of the Odyssey where that it features a character named Nausicaa, which I've I've never read the Odyssey uh, as shameful as it is as that is of me. Uh, but there is a, a character there, Nausicaa, that helps Odysseus in his journey and shares some traits, personality traits. With uh, with Nausicaa from from the, this uh, manga slash film. Yeah, in Japanese mythology, there's the um, tale of the princess who likes bugs, and she's more interested in insects than actually finding a suitor. Yeah, Dune. Uh, not Dune is a big inspiration for some, but mostly I think Dune was mostly for like the the desert, uh, desert like inspiration uh, that and the worms. Instead of worms, there's like this om. The alms that are bugs, but they sort of like have the same effect on the uh, uh, on the world here as they do Dune. Another one that may, maybe not a uh, a direct inspiration, but it is sort of like the mother of this sort of post apocalyptic ancient technology, forgotten technology uh, world is the sort of the Dying Earth by Jack Vance, which I've talked about before, which is set up instead of thousands of years, instead of millions of years, but it's sort of like the same premise where. A, a giant catastrophe has essentially regressed the planet Earth, uh, and now it's mostly tribes and kingdoms scattered uh, that are trying to survive. And there's also this, much like in Nausicaa, in the Dying Earth, there's this sense of doom. There's the sense of that the Earth's days are, are limited. That's why it's called the Dying Earth. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing is here. Like, yes, there's people constantly trying to fight that, but there's a, also this huge sense of despair in Nausicaa that eventually the the toxic jungle or the sea of decay whichever translation you prefer will eventually eng eng engulf the rest of the unpolluted earth and you will eventually humans will go extinct so i like there's a lot of parallels there too yeah 
Well, yeah, uh, as mentioned earlier, like Future Boy Conan, um, the TV series that Miyazaki directed, that uh, has similar themes. So you have like, um, I think it's like a war brings humanity to the edge of extinction and um, people try to get off Earth in rocket ships and um, it doesn't quite work. And one rocket ship crashes on a desert island and there's a boy who, um, he's the youngest survivor. Uh, well, he, he he's born on the island, he's the survivor and... Um, he encounters other humans, and they're using old technology that they've managed to keep running this in a ramshackle way. Yeah, this this was made at a time when Japanese uh, Japan was industrializing at a rapid rate, and like there was pollution, like uh, like Minamata Bay uh, with mercury poisoning. That's and another that inspiration, of course. Yes, which we yeah, did talk about when we talked about uh, the Kazuhara Kazuhara, uh, uh, you know, like series. Yes. Uh, that was a one of the better in the in of his documentaries, I think. Yeah, so like Miyazaki's always had this um, maybe pessimistic view of humans and their interactions with the environment, which comes through in a lot of films, and also like humans' inability to control technology. They allow like the negative traits of humanity to like lose control. He's also sometimes has which which is why I sometimes call him perhaps too idealistic. It's not necessarily here in. In uh, in Nausicaa, because I think I feel like here he takes a very balanced approach. But in other movies, like maybe even uh, uh, Spirit Away, House Moving Castle, or you know even Princess Mononoke, where it almost feels like he has like an anti-progress or anti-technological uh, 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 like streak that runs through him. Uh, that uh, especially in Princess Mononoke, where there is. Um, uh, almost all of uh, of technology, especially Iron Town, as they call it, is like essentially the source of 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 evil, <laughs> and the reason why pretty much all nature goes astray and goes mad and is trying to kill the humans. Yeah, it's he creates a really complicated picture of Lady Eboshi in Iron Town because, like, in many ways, it's a progressive place because she's founded a a a, a home for. <laughs> former brothel workers that she's rescued for people with um oh uh what's the disease um leprosy so basically outcasts of society and they have a, a, a stake in where they live they have respect um and uh, a place they can call home but like the the destructive nature of the way they've established themselves like you said causes um the animals in the forest to go mad and you might normally, like in an environmental film, side completely with the animals, but the animals aren't totally likable either. The bulls are really <laughs> so arrogant. That, that's and... where I would disagree. I, th I think you do make a point, but I would see that Miyazaki does side completely with the animals here. And the destruction of Iron Town in the end. And even Lady Boshies, yes, you're right, she does have some progressive streaks to her, but towards the end, it becomes more clear that she's an exploitator rather than a savior of these people. It's essentially using them as cheap labor. Maybe not quite as cold as that, but it, there's a strong implication. So I think, I do think that Miyazaki is, like that's why I said an almost anti-technological streak, because I do think that in the end, he sides almost completely with, the, with nature. And yes, they're not all likable, but I, I feel like that's an appeal to Miyazaki, that nature is harsh. We have to learn to almost be servant in a way, and I think I, I'm not I'm not sure how I feel about that because you know what? What if progress requires some destruction? Like he doesn't ask. The, I'm not saying that's the answer, but I, that's a question that I want 
like an intelligent person to ask, what if the cost of progress, the cost of you know technological advance requires some sort of co- a, a certain amount of conquering nature? And I do feel like that in Ashika, he does ask that question. He does say, well, like, like the villagers say, we do use fire. We just don't burn the entire forest. We only use it to, to sort of like burn out the parts of the forest that are going to kill us, but we leave the forest and the instance alone otherwise. So I feel like he does that he does that more more nuanced argument here, whereas in some other parts he doesn't ask that question. He's just like, yeah, humans are bad, they're burning the forest, they deserve to die. Well, maybe not quite as extreme, but I feel like he skirts that line pretty closely. Perhaps you could say it's like um, a conservation theme that he has going on, that he's pessimistic about- Well, I think about- he's gotten more bitter as time goes on. Well, he's pessimistic about humans and their rapacious appetites and their propensity to repeat mistakes and do stupid things and to consume the environment. Uh, he recognizes that and he has a character who can try to act as a mediator between the natural world, uh, between like uh, Gaia, I suppose you could say, and um, the humans and uh, try to bring an end to, uh, to a conflict by making people recognize that they don't have to be greedy capitalists. <laughs> Yeah, well, that, do they, because that's another thing that, again, I've taken issue that, yes, everything that you say is correct, yet in pretty much every, Miyaza- every world that Miyazaki c- creates, we have, we have kings and queens and princes and princesses and lords and peasants and iron workers and coal workers and, and chimney sweepers and whatever, an ex- extremely classed or caste-based society, and everybody's happy in their place. And that's, again... Uh, it's not it's not an issue that Miyazaki tries to address but it is it is a fact of his world that that it's you know why why do they need to be happy everybody is happy with the role that they're sort of cast uh and everybody magically respects the benevolent king and that can do no wrong like Nausicaa in this film can do no wrong or uh, Ashitaka can do no wrong but it's that's again that's I think one another example of Miyazaki being slightly a bit too idealistic uh, because it's his world. He can do whatever he wants, but when he's trying to make a parallel with the real world, well, people would not be happy in, in such a strongly stratified society. I don't see it as quite as simple as that because you do get moments, like particularly with Asbel and his subordinates actually do attack him when he tries to spoil their plans. And um, Kushana's own troops decide to flee when they understand that the um, bike. Well, flee. because their life is in danger. But I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that necessarily like negates that point. But it's yes, of course, people are still logical, and they'll when like a horde of giant arm is coming at them, they'll flee. But I don't think that's necessarily like a, a, excuse me, a statement that Miyazaki is trying to make about authority. But he, he's depicting two forces like the like force of human society which he's drawn from real history sure and i'm not necessarily talking about this film and this film that's not an issue but in a lot of other films where where there's such a, a strong evidence of class and royalty and and stuff and everybody seems happy in their place well yeah kiki's delivery service she meets really uppity rich yeah, the worst, the worst characters in there are the rich people or the the, the middle class people. Who are, fair, fair, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. It's kind of like yeah, I I think there is a, a streak of idealism in my neighbor Totoro, um, but that's such a small example compared to like the other worlds, which are a bit more complex, especially Princess Mononoke. 
I do like in in, in Nausicaa, I, I, the visual, again, going back to his influences and the metaphors that he's trying to, to, to convey, visually, he does a great job. Like, one thing that I loved was some of the flying insects look exactly like World War II planes. Oh, okay. I, I thought you were going to say something like, um, not, am oh, ammonites? Um, no, trilobites, trilobites, trilobites. Um segmented creatures that crawled along the ocean floors in primordial oh, like, days. like water bears. Ah, I work in a museum, we've got their fossils. Um, <laughs> oh I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a connoisseur <laughs> of various insects and animals, that's, that's not my strong point. So Yeah, well, segmented can... insects that look like the Omu. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course, of course. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there is inspiration, but like the... Uh, that's too, but I, I was impressed because that's that's a strong point in uh, that's a big deal in in Miyazaki's upbringing. He grew up during World War II, where presumably there's a lot of bombing happening by American planes in Japan. Yeah, his family had to evacuate north of Tokyo a couple of times, and didn't his father run an aircraft factory? Possibly, I don't remember. I don't. I mean, I, I don't. I'm not as familiar with his. I'm sure I've read it at some point, but I'm not as familiar with his biography. Uh, I know he was a sort of a contemporary with uh, uh, with uh, uh, Fukasaku, uh, more or less. Uh, Miyazaki was born in 1941. I think. slightly okay. So he was slightly younger. He's about ten years younger. But he essentially he grew up in the war, and he does have memories of the bombings. So no wonder he's pessimistic about humanity. Yeah, and you can tell. So uh, one way to under and this is like if you need like if you have only three minutes to understand Miyazaki, watch his Oscar acceptance speech and compare it to Kurosawa. Kurosawa's Oscar acceptance speech. So one was happening in nineteen ninety, I think Kurosawa, and Miyazaki was when he won for um, uh, Spirit Away, I think two thousand three or something. Oh, was this after the war in Iraq? Yeah, compare the two. And Miyaz you can see Kurosawa is smiling from ear to ear. You cannot, he cannot contain his happiness. He's a filmmaker uh, through and through, and he's happy to be with other filmmakers who idolize him and he idolized them. He, he's happy to be at the heart of Hollywood, where you know, what movies began and all that. He's, he's just, he could, cannot, you, you can see the happiness just oozing out of him, uh, while still also being very humble. Miyazaki is all serious, and he says, well, I'm happy because my country has not started any wars recently. <laughs> any wars recently. <laughs> that's, that's essentially his Oscar speech. I don't even think he thanked anyone. Maybe he thanked his producers, and that's it. No, that's I don't think gangster. He, I don't think he smiled once. And I think that's, if you, if you want to understand Miyazaki, that's it. I don't think he's, he's a guy who's very optimistic about a lot of things. And, like, even... Even what I'm criticizing for, it's perfectly logical considering the point of view that he, like, like how he views life, basically. Yeah. Which I think is too pessimistic. I don't think it's good to be that pessimistic, both for personal reasons, but also for your art. I think your art needs to have a streak of optimism. And I think he does. I think he, and maybe I'm psychoanalyzing him too much, but I think he inserts optimism into his art despite himself, despite, despite his better judgment. I don't think he wants to, but I think he recognized that it needs to have uh, like a streak of optimism running through it. Well, there's that cataclysmic moment, and there's that like last scene where there's a possibility of rebirth, like a sprout from the ground, a plant sprouting from the ground. Uh, yeah, uh, it's perhaps it's an awareness that he's got a very large audience, especially kids, and he wants to give them some hope. 
even as adults are ruining the world. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I did not get this so much from the film, so maybe it's in the manga, but I read a a couple of reviews where they kind of described how how resources are very scarce uh, in this world. There's a few line. There are a few lines in the films where, like, where they the they're in a glider and they're about to crash into the toxic forest, and they're like, "Quick, let's throw all the supplies out to lighten the load." And one of the one of the guys, one of the old guys, is like, "This is such a waste." And um, there's a moment where they're inspecting the uh, the Tolmekians are inspecting the castle, and they're surprised that there's um that the that the people of the Valley of the Wind actually have an aircraft, but it's gone into much greater detail in the manga. And um, like you're keeping track of like how much arable land is polluted, um, deliberately so in terms of like um, salting the earth and um, biological warfare. In order, these two empires are really like cutting each other's throats essentially. Uh, which again, like I said earlier, it's really frustrating to read. You're kind of like, guys, can we stop this madness? Yeah. I also read uh, the, so the, the one person who was running through it was making the case that even metal is very scarce, uh, and that's that's why they kind of like shells of these alms are very valuable because they are sort of like a substitute to metal. Yeah. Did you get that sense, like in the like fantastic aircraft battles in um, Nausicaa the movie? Uh, but like you've got these huge airships that get shot out of the skies really quickly. To me, it felt like they were ramshackle um, airships built from like the scraps that had been found here. I got and there. the same. Some of them, some of them looked like that, but then the, some of the gliders looked like they were metal. Uh, yeah, and maybe that's why, like, they're surprised to see that in the in the Valley of the Wind because it is a metal and it's rare. But one thing I did not show is this: is this because of the of the apocalyptic nature that it's really hard it's the, to mine metal anymore, so they don't have it, or is it just like in this world of Miyazaki? metal is uh is just rare just in this universe uh, there's never been even before the the seven days of fire there was just not that much metal uh, because they talk about ceramic they talk about this thing called ceramic which i'm not sure what it is even in the film but i also looked looked at some of the information about the manga and there's also a ceramic that they talk about so i don't know what that is if it's just something that miyazaki thought would just be cool to add it's from like the craft that were or spacecraft essentially that uh, left like, mouldering on the earth, and this is like just like with uh, you know medieval period in Europe, um, people were scavenging um, what former empires had left behind. They weren't actually using it properly because they didn't have the tools or the know-how or the willingness. It was just like what they created, like a new society based on the scraps of the old society. Yeah, and you get the sense that you know they don't have the ability to mine anymore or if they do have the ability to mine then you know they're going to be a big empire but it's breaking down because they can't maintain it yeah another possible strong uh, sense of in, uh, inspiration for this was uh, i don't know if you've read the book a canticle for Leibowitz. no i've never heard of it you've never heard of it oh it's a very famous science fictional book uh it's never been adapted into a movie strange or at least i don't think it's been but it's about this society uh, it's the world has kind of essentially destroyed itself uh, from a nuclear war, and uh, it's regressed back into sort of a, a medieval uh, or almost like dark ages, like technologically. But uh, but like I said, history is repeating through, so they've kind of regressed. But there's again slowly uh, advancing, and there's this 
monastic order called the Order of Leibowitz, who whose uh, goal is to find artifacts from the old from the old Earth and then preserve them. Uh, and then tragically, as as you know, the world moves on again, and it kind of it kind of uh, discover rediscovers things again. They discover electricity. They discover all that. Eventually, they they rediscover nuclear weapons, and then the same thing happens again. They destroy themselves again. If you enjoyed that, I think you're gonna really enjoy the manga for um, Naushka. Yeah, so that that's why I'm, I'm. I think that might that might have been inspiration. But one thing that they do is in the second round, after they've discovered, they actually the Order of Lebowitz knows that humanity will destroy itself. It's like there's almost this like very dark inevitability about it, about how everybody knows that eventually we'll just start nuking each other, and that just will happen. It's only a matter of time. Uh, it's very depressing in that sense. But they kind of they they dedicate themselves to developing a spaceship so some humans can go and leave and maybe go to some other star. Do you think that also happened here? Because they do make that comment that oh, these ships maybe could go to space, not just fly, like these old ancient ships that are now in ruins. So do you think that maybe like in like right before the Seven Days of Fire or something, uh, like some people left Earth altogether to hopefully to escape to somewhere else, or is that covered in the manga at all? I, no, it's not covered in the manga. It's like there was space travel, but now no more. Yeah. So well, I think it stands to reason that maybe some people attempted to leave at least. At least. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Another another um, anime uh, or manga property you might be interested in is Vampire Hunter D because it's kind of like a medieval or no a supernatural horror take on this sort of setting because you know humanity. Uh, exists under the rule of vampires and like the vampires have been able to create space technology but it's again it's like in decay when we get to that world okay well how how would vampires survive in outer space because i'm assuming it would be too hard to hide from the sun's radiation i did well i did not actually see that in oh, is it also an anime <laughs> yeah vampire i think Hunter it D. is i think it's it is because i've heard two of it yeah. anime movies Okay, least, maybe I'll check it out. I, I, I did start reading just last night. I did start reading uh, Nausicaa. I read about 30 pages of it uh, before. I was just reading before we started. Uh, I did notice one thing right away is that when um, Nausicaa meets, uh, meets uh, Master Yupo in the beginning, it almost proceeds identically to, to the movie, except when they touch, she says, oh, I've been, we've been summoned to war, which I don't think it's in the movie. Yeah, like I said earlier, there's a lot more about the grand politics of the world and the different empires. I, I've re I've refrained from spoiling too much. Where the manga goes will be very interesting for you and for listeners. Yeah, but I did it because that's a major deviation, right? Like right now, she has to eventually go to war. Like she's been summoned. It's like it's like there's this like it's a kingdom of the Valley of the Wind, but they're perhaps dependent on some other even greater kingdom or empire, maybe? Essentially, Tolmachia is the big power, and they've summoned them I see. to a war band. I see. Because in the movie, it sounds like it make it seem like they're independent of each other. Yeah. Like, it seems like Tolmachia actually has to conquer and occupy them, it cannot just order them around. Yeah. Yeah, there's a series of treaties that the uh, kings have to respect. And again, um, Calling back to Naushka's uh, femininity, when uh, people of other tribes see her, they're surprised that she isn't a prince; she's a princess. Yeah, but like I said, yeah, it's very fascinating. That's I think 
subtleties. There's a lot of subtleties about this movie, and I'm sure in the manga too, but talking about the movie, that I, I didn't appreciate the first time I watched it. Uh, like I said, I really loved the world, but the, the subtleties of the character, especially Nausicaa as a character, and how she approaches every situation, and how consistent she is. She's very consistent in how she is, except that one instance where she kind of goes into rage because her dad died. That I think like make make this maybe Miyazaki's greatest movie. I don't know that I would have said that before rewatching it for this episode, but I think it might be his best movie in his very great filmography. Yeah, it de- like like I like I said earlier, it rose in my estimation when I chose to look at Naoshika as a character and her place in the world and how she approaches it. And it's like there are times when I've tried to sort of model my behavior on hers this will sound strange but it's kind of like when i when i'm feeling frustrated or maybe angry or scared i think i i think what would Noshka do in this situation she would try to understand how others are feeling in this situation and uh, approach them with, with a lot more empathy maybe i'm doing something wrong do you th- speaking of what would Nashika do another common phrase is what would jesus do do you think she is yes. like a, a, her arc <laughs> is uh, somewhat Christ-like, somewhat Messiah-like, in the, at least in the movie. Especially, I mean, there's this big part where she dies and is resurrected and is kind of like lifted up seemingly into the heavens. There's a bit of Christian symbology, which might be accidental. Like when she's trying to rescue the Omu baby, she's in a, she's got her arms like spread and in like a, a, a crucifixion pose and um, she's taking wounds to her uh, her feet and her hands. I don't think Miyazaki is too big on Christianity. It, it may be, it was probably inadvertent, who knows. Um, but uh, yeah, this, uh, like maybe uh, a bit of a Joan of Arc. Um, yeah, because that, that's like, again, the, the sort of like the Christ-like story is, is, is prevalent in a lot of other places, not just Christianity. So I think this is maybe coincidental or, or yeah, maybe it's a, more of a Jean, of a Jean d'Arc, uh, a Jean of Arc. Inspiration, although the resurrection is perhaps a little bit more closer to the uh, the the gospel, but there are also like the scenes, like the flashbacks on the golden fields, and one of those flashbacks feels like like where she's with her father and her mother, and it's kind of like is she passing over to the other side, maybe. Yeah, well, I mean, she uh, she's uh, yeah, I think unmistakably brought back, right. Yeah, she's brought back, but there's that sense of like um not necessarily Christianity, but spirituality's oneness with the world. Like, yeah, like- yeah, and and from a like a realistic point of view, if you want to like really make like like dig down to the logic, we don't even know for sure that she died, right? Maybe she was like very severely injured, and she was healed by the insects. Yeah, she's hallucinating, and uh, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the one thing uh, again. It makes perfect sense in the movie, but I always kind of like to, sometimes I like to, because of how tied to our world is and to, you know, like everything being a metaphor for nuclear Armageddon and everything has like almost a parallel, the prophecy doesn't quite fit into that analysis, right? Because what would be, if this was somehow like a, a future of a, of a somewhat realistic Earth that, you know, like all these insects are mutated, mutated monsters through because of the radiation uh and all the poison is really just the byproduct of radiation and whatnot well what does the prophecy fit into all that it doesn't quite it's more of a the fantasy aspect of that miyazaki is inserted because it's you know it wouldn't make it wouldn't make that much sense and again like the femininity aspect comes in where everybody 
uh, sees the Messiah in the prophecy and they just automatically assume, oh, it's a guy. Even uh, that the old lady, Obaba, assumes that it's a, it's a man. At least in the translation, it's, he's referred to as he. I don't know if that's the same thing in Japanese or not. Yeah, well, yeah, there's a... Uh, I, I should have kept a listener for that, but um, in the tapestry itself, he's got a moustache. <laughs> oh, does he? Okay, I, I, I must have uh, missed that. I'm um, sure he's got a moustache. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, I mean, sure, but I think it, it, it's safe to say that everyone expect, expected him to be male. Uh, but yeah, at least in the dubbed version, when he she asks Yupa, she says, you're searching for him. So there's, there's a clip. But again, that could just be a translation thing. I don't know if the same pronoun in the same way exists in Japanese. So, But hmm. yeah, if he has a mustache in the picture, then that's also another indication. Yeah. Um, Naoshika is wearing blue throughout the film until she gets to the pejite when she's wearing red as a disguise. And she then also has she gets red ca- hair. Yeah, she gets covered in Omu blood yeah. and she's blue again. Yeah. So she fits the, um, the prophecy. Yeah, and there's also like the red and blue is when, uh, uh, when the insects are calm and friendly, they're blue. Their eyes are blue, but when they're angry and attacking, their eyes are red. Yes, uh, and then the the giants, the giants are depicted as red, but when they're destroying the earth, uh, but when they're in the or images in the early when like the film starts, there's some like the credits fall into some hieroglyphs. Uh, and there's a there's one hieroglyph that it shows the the humans building, building the giants. So they're clearly artificial, but the the giants are blue when they're building them. It's only when they turn turn against them and destroy Earth that they become red. So there's I think this very clear like you know like the the creation turned against them so to speak. Yeah, and uh, you know in the manga there's a lot of exposition like oh their eyes are red, their eyes are blue, whereas uh, I see in in the film, you've just got this great image of, uh, whoa, there's red dots in the distance. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's right, yeah. Well, the, the manga is also black and white, so you can't just... Yeah, you need that exposition to, exactly. ex- to tell you, oh, how the Omu are feeling and if they're going on rampage. Yeah. Um, all right. What, what are the, what, I mean, I guess we can talk about the music of this film. It's very good. I, I enjoyed it uh, a, a lot. Sometimes a, a few of songs felt like a little bit out of place but for the most part uh the music is very memorable uh uh yeah, nice, as you said great ambient music for when Naushka's in the forests and she's just um experiencing the wonder and the awe and the music conveys that very well and the flashback scenes where there's that whole la 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 song a vocalized yeah like a child's dog girl exactly yeah uh which felt familiar like felt like okay I, that melody i've heard it so i don't know if like it's like some common like old lullaby that uh, that the composer just repurposed because it, i don't know if you got the same feeling or maybe i'm just remembering from the first time i watched this movie i'm just kind of a mis- misplaced memories but it felt to me like it's like i've i've heard it somewhere else uh, perhaps that's the brilliance of joe hisaishi he's able to create something that has sort of universal um feel to it and um, I think I read that it was his daughter that actually sang that. Let me check that out. Okay, interesting. Uh, but it is like, like you know, like the the world of Nausicaa feels very Western in terms of of like the inspiration, like very medieval Europe. And I think the music also felt very like appropriate, like sort of like medievalish European 
style. It didn't. I mean, Hisaishi's music kind of has a European sort of connotation to it, but this one also was, I think, very appropriate for the for the film. I just like like great moments where you've got like uh, pulsing drums for like action scenes, and then it can go into soaring um, um, string instruments. But he also uses electronic instruments as well, so he's like, very experimental. Yeah, for the eighties, yeah. Ah, so yeah. So the film score was composed by Joe Hisaishi, while the titular theme song Kaze no Tane no Naoshika was written by Takashi Matsumoto, composed by Haruomo Hosono of, um, I believe, Yellow Music Orchestra, and sung by uh, Narumi uh, Yasuda. Additionally, the song Naoshika's Requiem was performed by the then four-year-old Mai Fujisawa, Joe Hisaishi's daughter. Okay. Do you think... Do you think there is a I, maybe this is expanding the man in the manga uh, because for the large part there is no supernatural abilities by other humans. Do you think there's a supernatural element to Nasika? To Nasika's ability. She, she can read the wind, which is why she's able to anticipate, well, detect danger before anybody else. Yeah. So and there's a, a sense that again she's got access to oneness to Gaia to like um the world to to, to a, a higher level of spirituality that other people haven't. Yeah, and at least in the movie, there's nobody else who can sort of like talk to the insects and calm them down like she can. Yeah, like she seems to have like you be unique with that ability. Which again, maybe it's just very good, you know, like empathy and and animal handling but could also be just something supernatural about her connection with nature and with the insect specifically that she's able to just kind of like use some kind of charm uh yeah to use them the way when uh first uh master yupo is kind of commenting to himself oh she just used a, a charm to do it he to, to calm him down he made it sound like that's a common thing like that's a charm it has a name so other people must use it too, and she's just very good at it. But at times, it also looks like she's maybe the only one who can do it like she does. I, I think in the manga, like the religious aspect to it, the supernatural aspect, is uh, due to the actual greater size of the manga's expanded upon a lot more. Okay. So the, like Yupa himself also gains a, a sort of supernatural aura to him, and uh, there's a greater sense of destiny to this uh, thing. Do in the in the manga, you don't have to give specifics, but do any major characters die? I'm not gonna say anything. Um I think it's best for people to discover this because like um I was reluctant to actually um get into the manga itself. I, I knew it existed and it was a little bit too expensive for my taste, and then I ended up uh reading it and I was totally swept away and Part of like the enjoyment was not knowing what was going on, so I I don't want to say anything about the direction it goes in. What I will say is, I think you will like it a lot, and readers, I I think everybody will like it actually, and I recommend people read it. All right, all right, fair enough. Uh, so what else? What else can we say about this movie? Have you actually seen any of the video games that are based on this? I didn't even know there were video games. Like I said, I, I've always kind of assumed that uh, Miyazaki has always been very protective about his IP, so he barely allows anything. Like like we said, like the existence of the manga suggests like this should be a TV series that they can really go into depth 
especially today, some streaming service could pick it up and and really do a good job with it. But Miyazaki would never allow it. So I'm curious to hear about the video games. I didn't even know they existed. So it seems like they're hard to get. Um, I did find one video on YouTube um, yesterday after um, a quick search called Kaze no Tani no Nashika on the NEC PC 88. And it is horrible. It's like terrible graphics, terrible gameplay where you're well, going that, that was gold. from the 80s, right? So yeah, it's from the 80s, but yeah, even for the 80s, it's like it was terrible. And um, like, there's a story going around that Miyazaki saw it and he was so unhappy he forbade like video games uh, adaptations. I don't know how true this is though. Which is a shame because just like a TV show, like a, you can imagine creating like a sprawling RPG, uh, like a big RPG for uh, based on Nausicaa and the world, and like you know maybe you could play someone like not one of the main characters, but you know like maybe either a JRPG or maybe like something like Baldur's Gate. Uh, yeah, I think other other game makers, as we mentioned earlier, just taken inspiration and just chose to run with it, even if Miyazaki has no part. Absolutely. It could be, it could be, I mean, this, cause the world, especially from the manga, the world is so rich and that's really what makes a great RPG is like detailed world, like Skyrim, like all the Elder Scrolls game. It's like, there's so much thought put into, I've never been a personally big fan, but I do recognize what they're good at. There's so much like thought and, and detail into the world and that kind of freedom to kind of explore and get immersed into the world. I feel like that kind of genre would be perfect for Nausicaa. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, uh, like, a. Uh, a good equivalent would be like the Fallout series, I guess. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So like that style, like any of those styles where you have like an expansive world and then a story that happens, but also, you know, like a, a lot of side quests, a lot of exploration, a lot of uh, any of those games that allow that could be fantastic. Or like what they did with the Harry Potter game recently, where it's like, you know, it's said hundreds of years before, but it's essentially you have like this giant world that you can explore and develop your character and build and that's it like these kind of properties these kind of ips make make great games of that genre perhaps toshio suzuki is constantly arguing for this yeah i, I do wonder do you think there'll be like uh, uh more more of these once miyazaki passes away or do you think people will respect his wishes and just never do it uh knowing how businesses work like they brought back um peter cushing for star wars rule one like uh yeah businesses will find a way peter cushing does not have the same cachet as miyazaki i mean he could write it in his will <laughs> uh and whether or not that is a viable or not like i i wish it happens like i want it to happen because you will not again like the 80s were a time where op video games were very opportunistic let's exploit this property and like release a, like a, a terrible title out there but now like especially with so many people have considered maybe Biazaki is not one of those people but so many people consider video games art or even tv series like like a long tv series that you know that there are people that can do it really well and and it, it would not be a disservice to the title and the ip basically yeah it's <laughs> It, like you said, it's one of those properties that um, could be developed, um, and you can see how it could be developed, um, whether it will or not. Only time will tell. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, but no, I, I, again, I did not know the video game existed, existed. Is there any other one, or is it just the one on the PC engine, or the NEC PC? I, that's the only one that I saw. Um, I've... Uh, 
I don't know if there are any others exist, but I read um, Crystallis um, uh, and um, has is heavily uh, was heavily inspired by Nashka. And I took a look at one of the videos, and uh, yeah, you go into a forest that seems like it's poisonous, and there are like uh, giant beetles or um and um, flying insects that look straight from uh, Nashka. I see. Uh, there is not a video game, but uh, this would also be a great title to expand into a tabletop RPG. Uh, where people can sort of create characters and play. And there's obviously, there are no licensed ones, but there's a few third-party ones that are like sort of very clearly significantly inspired by this one and other Miyazaki. And one of them is called Ryutama. I've never played it, but I've seen it. It looks very promising. Oh, never even heard of it. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, tabletop RPGs are not a big industry. They're a very, very small industry, so I wouldn't be surprised. But if you look at the pictures, there's a very... Uh, uh, very clear inspiration by uh, Miyazaki, not specifically uh, Nausicaa, but Nausicaa is is definitely a big part of it. Okay, one to look up. Yeah, it's something that you know. If you ever find people, friends who are willing to do to, to who are into uh, tabletop RPGs, which are always fun. Like I prefer them to video games, but uh, finding people is never easy. I think uh, you, I've only played one, and that was Arkham Horror. Was that a tabletop game? Yes, Haven't... and you could create your own characters in a Lovecraftian universe. I think. Oh, it's okay. I, I I know it's from Fantasy Flight. I know the game. Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, so, I, mean, so... I, I wasn't into it at the time. I wish I'd been more enthusiastic. Well, I mean, you might enjoy Call of Cthulhu. That's a that's a horror game where you create. Uh, Characters, uh, I think uh, there are various settings, but the main one is uh, in the 20s. And you essentially create characters and you kind of investigate cosmic horror, various events. And eventually the, the, the game is such that you know you're going to die. The goal is to survive as long as possible. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> or you're either going to die or go insane from... from uh... Oh, typical Lovecraft ending. Yes, exactly. It's a very, very, it's a very you know, highly regarded game. Um, all right, but anyway, going back to Nausicaa, what, what else can we talk about? Can we discuss about the film? Uh, hmm. I mean, we definitely covered like the key themes of the film and the sort of like the, uh, the key aspects, the inspirations, the music. Visually, of course, like what can you say that hasn't been said about, you know, Miyazaki's very attentive to detail. It's, uh, it's, he made anime this is maybe a technical detail and I am might be perhaps anecdotal, but he made animation at 24 frames per second. What at the time what the cat costs, a lot of animation was maybe like, like 20 or 14 or 15 frames per second, which is, you know, time, a lot more time consuming and expensive, but he sort of like insisted in it, uh, on it. Uh, and sort of like, he definitely had a, a lot of, uh, was a perfectionist and he still is i guess that's why he's taking so long to make movies or he took so long and, to make his last movie yeah and there's a wonderful fluidity to the action in the film and also great beauty too did you i was i always the first time i watched it it reminded me a little bit more not so much the characters but like the background the monsters the plane of the the 80s movie heavy metal i've never seen it okay i uh, it's 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 a it's a remarkable it's a you know, interesting movie, and it's it's uh, uh, was part of that movie was uh, the artist Mobius, which I learned was an inspiration for Miyazaki, a general inspiration. I don't know if he was an inspiration for this movie specifically. Yeah, 
so so it w- I would not be surprised if like maybe heavy metal or some other of his of his works of Mobius's works were maybe indirectly influenced Miyazaki's visual style in this uh, movie. Uh, all right, I think maybe maybe this is a good place to end our discussion on Mononoke on Mononoke on uh, Nausicaa uh, of the Valley of the Wind. Uh, yeah. Oh, should we should we say that it won? Uh, the Kinema Jumpo Awards, uh, nineteen eighty-five, uh, Reader's Choice Awards, best film, and Mainichi Film Concourse, nineteen eighty-five. It won the Ofuji Noboru Award, which is essentially for animation. Yes, uh, it was also had a interest in the West. However, it was it was chopped up and cut by uh, Warriors of the Wind. Uh, yes, and it was sort of like the what made Miyazaki very skeptical. Of releasing his movies to the West until like the nineties, I think. Yeah. And led to the famous like story or anecdote where he sent Harvey Weinstein uh a sword with a message no cuts. And I think that was for Princess Mononoke, because or I think it was, not a hundred percent sure. Yeah, yeah, it was for Princess Mononoke. Okay, and maybe that was like the first one that he kind of reconsidered to release in the West. Uh, was that yeah, that was, that was like the big breakout hit for Ghibli in the West. Yes, absolutely. But Totoro, I, I'm surprised it wasn't Totoro, but maybe Totoro didn't do so well internationally. But okay, uh, that's that, all right. So, so that ends our discussion. And of course, we can jump into our news section, the first item of which is aptly the new Miyazaki movie, which we know nothing about other than it's called The Boy and the Heron, or The Heron. Uh, which I think that's only the international title. I think Japan is known as How Do You Live, or is that not correct? Yeah, it's How Do You Live in Japan. And G-Kids in America gave the uh, film the title The Boy and the Heron. It was released in Japan a couple of weeks ago, um, and no trailers, still no trailers. No trailers, no clips, nothing but a poster. Why do you think they made that choice? It's difficult to tell. It's um, a deliberate tactic by Toshio Suzuki, and it seemed to work because it was number one on release, but dropped down in the charts now to like two or three. Um, like I, I've avoided reviews. I've just kind of looked at the headlines, and it's um, like Miyazaki's revisiting um, themes from his works again. It's, um, generally positive though. Uh, so yeah, just like it's an interesting marketing tactic to drum up interest because we're both. <laughs> interested in what well the let's contains. be honest we would have been interested regardless like right that it doesn't change but i i didn't read reviews but i saw a couple of reactions on youtube for people who had seen it i don't know how because they seemed american although maybe possibly they live in japan and they seemed very very optimistic for it i didn't i didn't listen to any specific plot details just general opinions that seem to be pretty good yeah it's uh based uh I, f- I think it's the 1930s and um it's uh partly uh, like a boy um exploring his world essentially and um it's based on a book where um it's like letters from an uncle who's given advice yeah what i read and i don't know for sure is that it it is inspired by the book but not not uh, taking based. any any plot details or anything specific it's just like very generally yeah uh, uh, inspired by the book yeah. Also titled How Do You Live, I think. Yeah, this film's a, a mystery, so let's hope we can uh, find out more soon. Yeah, I hope. Well, who knows when it's going to be released in the West? Like, it's certainly going to take a while, right? 
people who go to the Toronto International Film Festival will have the chance to see it because it's the opening film. Uh, when is that? So Toronto International Film Festival, did I actually put the dates in or not? Uh, That's usually in October, isn't it? September, October. So no, I didn't put the date in, but um, it's going to, like the festival will open up with How Do You Look or The Boy in the Heron. Okay, but I, I mean, I don't think I'm going to pay. It doesn't mean anything for me, but you know, looking forward to more a more wide release in the in the West, or at least it's some, some kind of release that I can see. Oh, definitely get a release. Okay, so so what other news is there, Jason? So, uh, Japan Film Festival, Japanese Film Festival Plus Independent Cinema is back, and it's running between August 1st and October 31st. And again, there are 12 indie films that are free to stream. Uh, these have all been recommended by Japanese mini-theater managers and international film experts this time. And um, big names include Nobuhiko Obayashi with Hanakatami, uh, which actually reviewed for V Cinema. And uh, Shomiake, uh, Anjo, Shomiake's Angel Bird Can Sing, which I also reviewed for V Cinema. Um, the site is now down, unfortunately, but you can um, see my reviews on my blog. Uh, so I, I recommend those two films. They're really good. Um, Shomiake well, is... There's also, uh, the, just to interject, the V Cinema should be on archive on the Wayback Machine. If you look on archive.org, it's been archived there and it all the reviews should be there. And you have put links to the reviews in the various notes on the actual Heroic Purgatory website as well. Uh, maybe. I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure I've done that. <laughs> uh, but I should. I should do that. I should link to the archived version of the cinema. I think you have. Oh, yeah, I did. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. I did. I did. In the, when, you, when I updated the links on the page on the most recent post at the end of our post for the episode yes it's the updated for the yes. archive yes yeah you're right you're absolutely right so um yeah uh so uh shomiake is a director on the rise he really small s- slow but steady which won like major critical acclaim at various festivals around the world um and uh best leading actress at the japan uh, uh film academy awards earlier this year so you can see one of his early works um, you've also got uh, Techno Brothers by Hirobumi Watanabe, who I've met and I've got I've got his autograph. Um, and uh, he's like a really like a uh, dry comedy master. And Techno Brothers is a musical road trip taken by a a, a band, a techno band, um, going from rural Japan to Tokyo to try and get a record deal. And um, Lonely Glory by Keitaro Sakon, which I've seen. Um, I like the film. Um, I think I like the film a lot more than other people, and it definitely lives up to this title, Lonely Glorious. You've got this know-it-all lady, businesswoman, who's like trying to dictate how other people live. And um, technically, she may be right, but <laughs> she ends up <laughs> uh, isolated. I thought, I thought it was a really interesting film. So those would be my recommendations out of the 12 films. The other films I haven't seen, so I'm really interested. So just go to Japan Film Festival Plus Independent Cinema websites. Um, we'll tweet out the links and uh, put them in the show notes. And uh, the other big uh, festival this autumn is the Venice Film Festival, which runs from August 30th to September 9th. And um, we've got in the competition section, Evil Does Not Exist by Ryusuke Hamaguchi. And he's actually got two films out this year. Uh, I can't remember the title of the other film, but Evil Does Not Exist. 
plays at the Venice uh, Film Festival. Out of competition, you've got Ryuichi Sakamoto's Opus by um, Neo Sora, and um, got an entry from China called Snow Leopard by Pemad Sedin, a filmmaker who died earlier this year, I think. Uh, I think he's from Tibet. Uh, who else have we got? Um, we've got Shinya Sukumoto with Shadow of Fire in the Horizonte section. And um, in Venice Classics, we've got uh, Moving by Shinji Somai. So we've mentioned him a couple of times in the show. He's a big director from the 80s um, who's constantly being rediscovered, um, you know, like every five years. Uh, moving is one of his most popular works, but uh, Third Windows Films has announced that they're putting out Typhoon Club, which is another one of his major works, very, very popular in Japan. And um, we've got also uh, There Was a Father by Yasujiro Ozu, so that's another um, one playing at the Venice Classics section. And Third Windows Films has announced a uh, director's company collection. So these are groundbreaking works from the 80s that may be underseen. And they've been given brand new digital remasters, new bonus features, and they come in limited edition collector sleeves. So, um, Guard from the Underground by Kiyoshi Kurosawa is um, one of the films that's out in September 25th. And uh, that was previously released on DVD by Arts Magic USA, I think, um, in the early 2000s. You've got one film that I don't believe has ever travelled to the West. It's called Door by Banmei Takahashi. And it's like a home invasion slasher movie, um, psychological horror, uh, about a woman who uh, gets mixed up with a, a very um, deranged salesman, door-to-door salesman. Um, I've seen that um, uh, get praise, and it has a 4K remaster last year that premiered at the Tokyo International Film Festival, I believe. And as mentioned previously, we've got Shinji Sumai's Typhoon Club. So if you talk to Japanese people of a certain generation, that is one of their, it's commonly one of their most favorite films. Um, and uh, so Door is out on October 30th and Typhoon Club is out on November 27th. And uh, yeah, it looks like, really, like looking at the covers, they're really great, very atmospheric. Uh, it's like got Yutaka Matsushige, who's the main antagonist in Guard from the Underground, hovering menacingly over the female um, protagonist on the cover. I actually reviewed it on my blog a number of years ago. And uh, yeah, it's a fun slasher movie because it's just absurd. A former sumo wrestler becomes a security guard in office and starts bumping off people. And uh, yeah, that's the big news uh, on in terms of festivals and home releases. Uh, all right, uh, that was it for our news segment of the episode, and we can jump straight into our final segment of the episode, and it is our cultural consumption. So, Jason, uh, why don't you tell us what you've been doing since last time we spoke, the highlights, so to speak, in terms of uh, media consumption, games, reading, etc., other than what we've already discussed, of course. So, I'm wrapping up coverage of the New York Asian Film Festival with... Um, two interviews and one review left to publish. So uh, the interview that I'm going to publish next is Anshul Chauhan for December, and uh, he provided a really great set of answers. Uh, and uh, yeah, if the other interviews I uh, had, um, Junji Sakamoto, really, really great interview, very generous with his time, um, and uh, like really gave a sense of warmth from his uh, answers. And uh, for um, Okiku and the World, one of my favorite films of the year. 
and Takeshi Fukunaga, a mountain woman, who um, filled in the details on the background. Really fascinating stuff. In terms of like other things I've been doing, I've been rewatching 80s and 90s American movies that I've never seen before. Like Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze? Uh, it's a, no, I've, I mean, it's a famous one, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's it's trash. Like oh, it, it's not good. It like no, it's it's good, but in a bad way. Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> it's it's a very it's like beloved a, movie, from what I hear. Yeah, it is. It's just like like bad taste elements, softcore elements, lots of TNA, and uh, it's hilarious. Like real hilarious. Like oh, gets right. really absurd when he busts out his martial arts skills. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, I've. Uh, like other films that I have seen, like The Money Pit, Silver Bullets, and A Nightmare on Elm Street, like revisiting those and enjoying them. I, I watched a, a Kurt Russell film called Used Cars, where he displays comedy chops and action chops in one go. It's uh, um, uh, who's the director of Ghostbusters? Reitman? Is it Harold? Ivan. Oh, Ivan. Ivan. Ivan Reitman. Reitman. Yeah. The his son is also a famous director. Interestingly enough, Jason. Jason, Jason Reitman. Reitman. Actually, a, in yeah. my opinion, a better director than Ivan, but. Yeah, thank you for smoking. Yep. Up in the air. Yep, yep. So yeah, just like 80s and 90s American movies. I tried to get back into French movies. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rosier, I think his name is. I want to watch his films. They were uh, in mini theaters in Japan. I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Um, I'm also coming to the end of my last playthrough of Castlevania Symphony of the Night. I've been really enjoying it. I got the Castlevania collection on PlayStation Vita. Oh, okay. And... Uh, and uh, yeah, I think Symphony of the Night is my highlight of the uh, collection itself. Um, love the great monster mashup, like loads of classics from various mythologies around the world, uh, really great character designs and music and levels. And um, it, like the detailed backgrounds are, are great. Like you could be running through a long corridor and there are windows that look out into a forest. And if you look carefully, you can see it. There's a giant eyeball hovering from window to window as it tracks your progress. And you've got like... Um, like scenes of like uh, uh like an alchemy lab and um like uh your deep underground and abandoned mind surrounded by coffins and you can bust open the coffins and things like that just like really great horror atmosphere to this castlevania game and um i think the next game i'll play after this is dino crisis also on the playstation vita and that's effectively my cultural consumption how about you Okay. Well, it's a strange coincidence because I, I also <laughs> tried Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Uh, it's ah. uh, it's first. It's the first time I've ever played. It's actually the I've played the older Castlevania. I've never been a fan of the series, like the 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 older Castlevania on the on the Nintendo Entertainment System on the NES were, you know, are well beloved. But I, I just can't go back to play them. Uh, yeah, the the one on Super Nintendo is pretty decent, although still I think something is missing. Uh, it's interesting because Castlevania Symphony of, of the Night sort of defined the genre that's known as Metroidvania, which has become one of my favorite genres of video games to play modern video games. And there's almost like a sort of a resurgent of that genre since the late 2010s. And there's a lot of great games coming out for it. And I think like playing a lot of these modern games in the same genre kind of spoiled the experience a little bit because like there's so many elements in Castlevania Symphony of the Night that I'm sure were great at the time but kind of feel a little bit outdated now that kind of prevented my enjoyment of the game. Uh, just, uh, just slight inconveniences. I'm sure, I, like I said, like had I not been so, uh, had I not played so many modern games of the same genre, I think I would have appreciated Symphony of the Night more. Um, like a lot of the elements that you mentioned, they're pretty common in Metroidvanias. Um, yeah. 
but I think the, the main reason I stopped playing is because I got stuck at some point. Uh, I don't know where to go. <laughs> I've kind of essentially like exhausted the entire map. I'm not sure what to do unless there's like something I'm missing. Uh, it's kind of like you you explore the entire castle and then you go up for the final confrontation. And depending upon if you if you're wearing the right items, if you're in a certain room, you can change the nature of that confrontation and the game expands even more. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not quite. I'm sure I'm not there, but I played quite a decent. Like, I've certainly put several hours into the game, so it's not. I'm not at the beginning, but I'm. I'm pretty sure I'm not at the end either. It's it's much larger than many people expected. Like people get the first ending of the game. There are multiple endings. People get the first ending of the game and they're like, oh, that's it. Okay. And then there's surprise when they understand that there's an entire new aspect to it. That's another thing. Like, I think modern Metroidvanias hold your hand, at least in telling you what to do and you're, where you're supposed to go. I mean, the, the, the difficulty is in the actual combat and action. Yeah. Uh, uh, so perhaps a little bit of platforming, uh, depending on the game. Uh, but anyway, uh, so that's another one. Uh, I watched the movie Nomad after your recommendation. Uh, oh, what did you think? <laughs> I, I enjoyed it a lot. I, I mean, it, I, it's, been, it's been a few weeks. So I don't remember all the details. But I, one thing that I wrote down while watching it is that I definitely see the Wong Kar Wai DNA. Absolutely. Uh, there. Like, it's, it's unmistakable. What else? I finished, uh, I finished the, the Chrono Trigger. I think last time we recorded an episode, I said that I was playing it. Yes. Um, and I finally finished it. I enjoyed it a lot. One thing that I would say is when, when I first heard, like, encountered someone who had told me how Chrono Trigger was, they used the phrase, and I think this is kind of like maybe a, like a commonly used phrase to describe Chrono Trigger, is that it doesn't necessarily have a great story, but it has great storytelling. Uh, and maybe I think I would agree with that. Like, I think a lot of elements in the story are cliche, but the way the story is told is really what puts it over the top. Yeah, I can see that. I still think it's inferior to many of the Final Fantasy titles. I think it came out around the same time as Final Fantasy VI. It was probably like the main comparison. And I think Final Fantasy VI is still a much better game than Chrono Trigger. Uh, but maybe I, I do have a soft spot for the Final Fantasy series. I'm not even like that big a fan of like a lot of the games in the series. Just a few games that I like are I really like. Yeah. Um, what else? I oh I played. I I I I think I mentioned before I had played another Metroidvania game called Ori and the Will of the Wings. And yes, I you did mention. I found out that that's number two in a series, and there was like a, another game that came before Ori and the Blind Forest. So I'm playing that one. It's very similar to the to the other game. Um, very. I also I might say that this is probably like Miyazaki inspired somewhat. Lots of insects. Yes, exactly. Uh, insects like magical forests, magical creatures, a lot of like like a sense of, you know, like like n n denying violence, even though it is a fighting game, uh, but still. Uh, and I was a guest host in another podcast talking about the Kim Ki-duk movie Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring. So in preparation for that, I watched a, a bunch of Kim Ki-duk movies, the kind of like a couple movies I had not seen, one movie I had not seen, and then a few movies I had seen just uh, to prepare for that episode. Okay, you'll have to send the link to folks. Well, oh yeah, once it's released. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we recorded it and it's not out yet. Once it's in, I'm sure I'll post it. But uh, uh, yeah, I think it, it holds up. I hadn't seen Spring, Summer, Fall. I've spoken highly of it. I hadn't seen it in a while. And after rewatching it, it certainly holds up. If anything, I, I appreciate it even more than before. 
we do, of course, Kim K. Duke is a controversial feature. Uh, I mean, a controversial person, director for many reasons. But the movies, a lot of his movies hold up. <laughs> that's that's undeniable. Yeah, I remember like the his, when I was in high school, I read about his controversies, and then I soon after I watched his films, and I think that negatively covers colors my perception of the movies. And I I I I just like I feel like his films are overrated, to be honest. But again, perhaps my perception is negatively colored, and if I approach them again i might feel differently but i don't feel like approaching them because of like the bad <laughs> i think up, well, overrated i would argue that is not necessarily true because not a lot of people rate his movies highly okay uh, so you not I, I, be you would not be alone in that but i do think that spring summer fall uh winter and spring is the one movie that is perhaps the most well received yeah of his, yes, he won the Golden Lion with Geta, but I don't know. I think I think that was kind of like a blunder. I don't think like even in the festival they didn't even they didn't even plan to give it to him. It was it was it was a technicality that they could not give it to uh, to Paul Thomas Anderson for the Master because he had already won a different award, so he wouldn't they were he were not allowed to win. At least that's the narrative that people have pushed. But I think Spring, Summer, Fall is the only movie of his that is kind of like well-received without much controversy. Everything else, I think you'll have plenty of people who like look down on them, on his movies. So I don't, I don't know that overrated would be a, a correct term since he's not necessarily a higher rated, although the people who do like him certainly rate him very high. Yeah, it's just the aura of nastiness to his works. Sort of like Lars von Trier. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I would argue that, like, I, we talked about this in the podcast a little bit, but I, was, I, I prefer someone who shows violence for the violence to be ugly and unpleasant, as opposed to, like Fukasaku, like, uh, not Lars von Trier, but uh, Paul Verhoeven, where violence is never <laughs> pleasant and it always has very severe consequences. That's always true in Kim Ki-duk's movies. Violence has terrible, terrible consequences that last throughout the entire movie. Uh, and I feel yeah. like the he's often dumped with the Asia extreme movement, and he doesn't belong to that. A lot of his movies hardly have any violence, and a lot of the violence is often off screen. Well, we can thank Tartan Video for that. Yeah, <laughs> anything that was Asian was extreme. Yeah, like I think I think some 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 of his movies, only a handful have very s small snippets of extreme violence. But it's again, we're talking about seconds in a two-hour movie. So, but anyway, anyway, I mean, like I said, it's, you you would not be alone in not in disliking him. But I do encourage you to to rewatch at least some of his better known movies because I do think there's something there. I I get the feeling that at some point in this podcast we're going to revisit them. Probably, I'm sure uh, some of them will come up. Uh, but yeah, that's that is my media consumption, uh, and that is also the end of our episode. Uh, for this week, for this, um, uh, for Nasica, the Valley of the Wind. So, Jason, any closing thoughts before we end it? I think uh, it's quite clear that we both really appreciated this film a lot more um, upon subsequent viewings, and uh, we both highly recommend uh, people watch the film. And I highly recommend people read the manga Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Uh, just super story, um, and I hope people enjoy it. All right, thank you for that, Jason. So if anybody has any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, please let us know at heroic-purgatory.com or our Twitter account at heroic-purgatory all in one word. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. <laughs>